Okay. You guys must have had some Christmas back there. Good. Okay, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God. Whoever does not love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Which means this is the kind of love we show. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. In fact, in the Greek, it could read this way. The way of verse 10. No one... Good. Sorry, sweetheart. Oh, is that better? Maybe I should turn this off. It is. It is. Hey, hey. Hey. Good. I'm glad I had to love one another text. I'm like, I've got to love these guys. <laughs> Don't be human to them. Stop. Anyway, let me, let me read the last part again, because this is what changed my mind. There have been some who were so preoccupied with spreading Christianity that they never gave a thought to, to the Christ of Christianity. And it struck me, because we're going to do that today. We're going to get into the text, but we're going to have some time, hopefully, where we give great thoughts about Christ and what he's accomplished for us um, at the cross. So let's just pray. <laughs> Father, thank you that nothing comes to us by chance, but through your providential hand. May we know your blessing now in, in every way. I almost want to say, Father, that every prayer I've ever prayed in preparation for a Sunday morning sermon, I wish they could just all be combined into one huge, massive prayer now as we close out this year together. And so we'll leave that to you, but the help is greatly needed for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. There's a fellow named Red West. He was a songwriter. He passed away a while back, but he wrote the lyrics to this song in 1966. I bet some of you know it. It begins like this. Oh, why can't every day be like Christmas? Why can't that feeling go on endlessly? For if every day could be just like Christmas, here's the line, what a wonderful world this would be. And if you're there, it's a great thought. A great thought, and it's a great question. Why can't every day be like Christmas? 
or maybe like the Christmas season, as we would understand it as Christians. And so it's more than sentimental, although some of that is very good for the heart and for the mind and the soul. Sentimentalism has a good place. But if you think about it, from heaven's point of view, every day is actually like Christmas. Because every day, and I hope you believe this, every day God pours out his gift of grace and he gives us undeserved gifts like the sun and the moon and light and air and heat and care and breath and heartbeat, lunar cycles, planet rotations, and and we are given the ability to think. And since Psalm 41.1 says, truthfully, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it belong to the Lord, we're able to work and we're able to sleep and the Christian is able to know that they are loved every day. They're all graces. They're all gifts given by God to us every day because I hope we don't think that we can do all that stuff on our own. So that's common grace and there's amazing grace if you're a Christian. Conversion, forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Christ, promise care, promise presence of Jesus. And so during the holidays, we know what it's like to be in the company of people we love, but also we know what it's like when those who have have gone away to, to heaven or some other place, we know what that feels like when they're not in our presence. So notwithstanding a Christmas season done right, understood properly, it seems to me could very well call for that kind of expression, a plea almost. Why can't every day be like Christmas? Giving, the receiving, the special things which take place in a Christian home, the the efforts that we make, the allowances that we give, the, the reflections that we have. Christmas tells me, tells the world, that in Christ you, you can, you, you, and stop having to prove yourself to anyone, least of all God. Because Christmas tells me that in the end, it really doesn't matter whether you're a failure or a king. All you need is God's grace in Jesus. And you can have it in spite of your failures and in spite of your rebellion, whether you're a king or a failure, rich or poor, smart, not so smart, when you've got it all together or it's all you can do to keep it all together, it doesn't matter. Christmas says the ground is equal at the foot of the cross. And grace is the only way that we can enjoy God and have proper thoughts about ourselves and and God and others. And grace, told us at Christmas, is the only way that we can enjoy the kind of equality that the cross gives to us, that we are actually our brothers and sisters, but here's the key, in Christ. Christmas also tells me there's no other religion which says that God has to suffer, that God had to be courageous, that God knows what it means to be a refugee, to be homeless, that he knows what it's like to be abandoned by his friends, to be crushed by injustice, to be tortured and to die. God knows what that's like. And God was glad to do it. He did it all for you, for sinners like me and you. Christmas also tells me after you know Christ, you get a new heart that wants you to live a life to please Christ. But you're not the strength for or the key to cleaning up your life. Jesus is, and that brings rest inwardly. Christmas shows me that God knows what we're going through. 
So when you talk to him, he understands and will make no improper judgments and send no improper feelings and have no improper thoughts on you ever. And God won't take revenge for your past sins. All because of Jesus. Christmas tells me that God in his love, in his infinite love, looks and he sees our guilty our guilty lives. He sees our humanity. He sees our inhumanity, our misery, our wretchedness. He sees it all. And he still sends his son. Christmas tells me that God is more glorious and more profound than I, I could ever imagine. Christmas tells me that the poem that I read over the Christmas time season, it just has, it's called the, That Summer Day by Mary Oliver, and this is one line, tell me what is it you plan with your one wild and precious life. That's a, quite a sentence, isn't it? Tell me what is, what, what is it you plan with your one wild and precious life. I don't have to fear that sentence. That sentence doesn't have to make me anxious or jealous of others because Christmas tells me our times are in God's hands. Which Christian, Christmas tells me, cheer up, Christian. Things are not left to chance. Things are not left to blind fate. God has purposes and God has plans. They are wise. They are beautiful. And they will not be foiled by anyone. And we will be stunned how gloriously beautiful the plans of God are. I'm going to keep going. Christmas tells me that we couldn't get to God, that we couldn't get to heaven. We couldn't get, get ourselves right. So God had to come down and get all that for us. And in Christ, he did it. Christmas tells me to live blameless before God only comes by true faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Christmas tells me that we do not have to fear death anymore. Death is a boon, a gain. Christmas tells me God took the worst possible evil and through it accomplished the greatest possible good. Christmas tells me that weak people can be made strong, not make strong as in some kind of like work project, but made strong by a person as in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christmas brings to me one of the most comforting thoughts that almost every major player in the Christmas story were what we would consider the least and the last and the lowest in the eyes of the world. So you have Mary, a very young girl, no reputation. Elizabeth, a very old woman, yet to have kids. Shepherds, you know this, probably the least desirable job a person can know at that time. And the two who were not the least and the last and the lowest, um, one King Herod and the other the Magi, Well, King Herod was a real psychopath, a delinquent of a man. And the Magi, as good as they were, they did not receive direct communication from an angel, specific revelation from God concerning the Christ child like uh, others had to do. They had to read the stars to get to the sun. So Christmas tells me that you can rest, that you don't have to prove anything to anyone, least of all God. So, so Christmas tells me that you don't need to make any power moves in your life to, to reach the top so that you can get um, noticed. 
didn't work that way in the Christmas story. It doesn't work that way in Christianity. Because here's the truth. The Christian worth lies in the fact that our sins are forgiven. That we are in Christ. In one sense, Christmas Christmas means we are bulletproof to the worst of threats. We are bulletproof to the largest of condemnations and accusations. We are bulletproof when we hear whether we say it to ourselves or someone else says, you're not good enough. We are bulletproof to that. And we don't have to be afraid of that. And no matter what, Christmas tells me that everything's going to work out for the good because we matter. And because we live in another kingdom, we live in another realm. We're here, but we're not here. So we're in the world, just not of it. And we make our best decisions. Listen, we make our best decisions with no worldly wisdom at all. So, do you listen to that? Why can't every day be like Christmas? But what do we know? Well, in a few days, we'll be back to school and back to university and back to work and back to our routines, back to the real world, and there'll be some little voice that says Christmas is over. But is it really over? And is it actually the real world that we're going back to? Because as I read this letter from John, John would have answered positively no to both those questions. Christmas is not over because Christ was born. He did die, but he was raised and he is alive. And we are alive in Him. And that means everything for everybody, every day, whether they're in Christ or they're outside of Christ. Christmas isn't over. Christmas is forever. In the real world, it's not the culture around us, no matter how powerful, how pressing, or even desirable it may seem to us. In the real world, we have to be honest, is desirable, at least to our flesh, Because what it does, or one other thing it does, it separates and it elevates wrongly. Because the real world separates the haves from the have-nots. And if you have it, you know, power, wealth, fame, beauty, body, mind, or a strong um, will, or you're willing to use rage, fear, or spite to get what you want, or even if you just have the it factor, whatever the it factor is, so that you'll stand out above the rest and you'll see yourself better, well, our flesh really, really likes that. Because we don't want to have to admit that we need mercy. We don't want to have to admit by way of our flesh that we need grace. They do, sure, but not me. No, the real world is the kingdom of God, the forever world, and under the rule and reign of Christ. And that real world covers every part of our life, both public, work, school, civic, and commerce, and private, our desires, our future, and our very essence. And that's why John writes what he writes in 1 John 4.10. Do you see it there? This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins. The gospel then is the language God uses to speak to the church. And it is the language that God uses to speak to the world. Please remember that. Even the clear calls in the Bible for holiness, which we read there, especially in the New Testament, are always for Jesus' sake or because of what Jesus has accomplished for you. So they're not calls of holiness. 
to elevate our status, to give us fulfillment, or build up our personal kingdom, or set us apart from our brothers and sisters so that we just stand out a little more. No, that is anti-gospel. That is anti-Christ gospel. The gospel is the language God uses to speak to the church because the world, the flesh, dead religious hubris, pride, an arrogance rooted in, in, in uh, ignorance speaks a different language to the world and to the church. Sometimes even just a subtly different language, like evil posing as an angel, or like a wolf dressed up like a sheep. You see, Christmas is forever, and the real world is God's kingdom because God is forever. And God's love says God's grace in Jesus is the only qualifier, and God's grace in Jesus is the only sustainer. Only God's grace. Only God's grace. So God's grace is more powerful than any law, any command, any threat, any opinion, any religious concoction which, which promises us to transform our lives and stabilize our lives. Which is what John writes when he writes in 1 John 4. Four quick points. Number one, God's love is a gift which lasts forever. Because at Christmas, and we said this already, from heaven's view, Christmas is every day. This is the forever God holding out forever love. Get that phrase in your mind. The forever God holding out forever love. Think of it. The love of God is a gift which lasts forever. Now, if you're going to measure God's love only by, you know, the level of dollars and cents or house or car or or body and brain as the world thinks about those things, then you're just going to spoil his love. Now, those things may matter. We understand that. It's just that they don't matter very much. The only kind of love which lasts forever must come from a forever person who's able to give forever love and take care of us forever. There's only one person I know like that. Which is one of the things which is so wonderful about Christmas and fulfilling about the Christmas season. Because every Christmas we get to do what? We get to hear and rehearse the story of God's love again. Every Christmas, the forever person God holds out his forever love. Manger, sure, but the cross. Real love. Again, forgive me, 1 John 4.10. This is real love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love, says John, not that. Make sure you're following the right love. And he goes on, verses 7 and 8 and 11, to tell us what is true between us and God ought to be true between us and other people. But too often, what is love? And I hope we would admit this. Love for us is love for the lovable, isn't it? Love for the likable, the attractive, the handsome, the beautiful person, the cool person, the talented, people who can do things for us, or even just the good old boy and the kind old lady, the very pliable person. And we love them because they just do whatever we want them to do, and they say whatever they want we want them to say, which is probably one reason why we would chase after all those things, because we want to be loved, we want to be liked, we want to be admired, we want to be listened to. However... Love for the lovable can be a problem for many of us because this is how I think. In that framework, a person would have to ask, how can I stay lovable? How can I stay lovable? That's the constant question. And, and then there's the comparisons that we can make. 
which of course they're terribly wrong to do, but by nature we still do them, comparisons which spoil love. Or worse, we kind of slap a percentage of how much we're going to love somebody based on our personal profiling of them, our assessment of them. So I'll love them more, uh, I'll love him more than her, because like, you know, he does 20 for me, whatever 20 is, and she only does 10. So 20 gets more of my love, and 10 gets less of my love. They're more agreeable. So I'll give them more. That's so human. That's not love. Love for the lovable is the cheap version of love. Love for the lovable is is easy to do. It calls for the very worst of our human nature to accomplish and, and to provide. So what we need is love for the unlovable. John tells us that we can never by our own endeavors, religious or otherwise, we, could, we couldn't give ourselves the ability to achieve that kind of love that way. We must, and here we are again, 1 John 4.10. John's like, this is love. Not that you love God, you know. God loved you. This is Calvary love. Sent his son as atoning sacrifice for your sins. And almighty God loves me. We, we never probably think of that often, I'm going to guess. And almighty God loves me. And that thought, let me say it like this, that is a thought that we should line every other thought we have about anything. I'm going to say it again. God loves me. That thought should be a thought which lines every other thought that we have about anything. God loves me. God loves me and we're losing the battle against indwelling sin? Yeah. God loves me, we're winning the battle of indwelling sin? God loves me when I think about my future? God loves me when I think of the need of some great sacrifice that has to take place for Jesus' sake? God loves me when I'm in the thick of something incredibly painful and hurtful right now? And when you say that phrase, and God loves me, the, the tone can change, right? When we need to be humble, we would say it like, God loves me. When we need to be happy, God loves me. When we need to be stunned and to brought low, God, God loves me. And when we need to worship, God, you love me. He loves me. He makes the first move. That's real love. That's Christmas. God's love is a gift, and it's real, and it lasts forever. And number two, it's a costly love. He loved us, and you know this, therefore he sent his son for us. Here is the Christmas gift in flesh and blood. And by the way, John writes one John before he wrote his gospel. So before the world ever heard, um, God gave his one and only son, John tells the world that God gave his son. So this is a gift that doesn't wilt at all. And any parent with the grace of having kids just knows how valuable your children are. This is a cliche, but it's still true. My son for your sins? Really? Only an act of God could work that kind of thing out. Mid-December, I was reading the online edition of the New York Times This article just caught my eye. The return of paganism. um, I think it said in America, but the front title was The Return of Paganism. I read it immediately. And it was 
it was uh, speaking about the religious trends in America, and he wrote this sentence, which I always thought was true, but I needed someone much smarter than me to kind of affirm it. This is what he said. Even with the American churches in decline, the religious impulse has hardly disappeared, right? So even with the American church in decline, the religious impulse has hardly disappeared. And the religious impulse he was speaking about was was an awakening or an experiencing which a person has, and then it fundamentally changes the direction of their life. So people still want that. And of course, there's all kind of counterfeit experiences to give them that. But as you think about every other religion in the world, every other religion's founder or process costs costs nothing. There is no sacrificial lamb in other religions at all. And we're so fallen, and we've been so fallen for so long that by nature, we can accept all those cheap counterfeits, and of course, many people do. It's like, excuse me, it's like making love. We can give our love to a false lover, whether it's for a night or for a month or for a lifetime. But when a person is able to grasp, uh, when blind eyes are made to see, God gave his son, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, to make everything right for you forever, that's quite an experience. (laughs) That's an experience I try to have every day. God sent his son into this world. What cost? What cost? Have you ever thought about this? There's a catechism question that asks the question, what were the humiliations of Christ? And they say, in his birth, in his life, in his death. Now think about the birth of Christ. Think about the life of Christ. Think about the death of Christ. The worst of arrangements in all of those venues. His birth was just really terrible. His life, really hard. His death, so much injustice. Cost Jesus. It cost Jesus. So God invades this dark world, and this is what he says to the world Your worst, my one and only. Your worst, my one and only Son. And you see what that does? When that's understood, that connects us to God. God doesn't want us to keep secrets. He's ready to say, My love at the cross just covers all that. My, my love for you at the cross is, covers all that. No secrets. No secrets. I don't know how we came about this as a family, but my wife and I would tell our kids from a wee little age, you can tell us anything. You don't need to keep any secrets. With God's help, we'll listen to you, and, and we, if we need to, we'll forgive you. And you know what? We said, and your confessions of your secrets may even remove all the punishment. <laughs> it was so cute. They would just... Hand in, hat in hand, and they would just tell us everything. This is good. No secrets. You know, our sins carry a seriousness to God, which they don't carry with us. So sin is like an oops to us. It's not to God. They're serious, and they can't be made up for by anything which we can do, or even if you took the whole human race, and they did some kind, good act, together all at once that is not enough that does not cost enough so at the cross we see sin's cost and we have the supreme love of God and his goodness expressed in that costly self-giving love in the person of his son 
God's love is a gift which lasts forever. God's love is costly. Number three, God's love is in indestructible love. So think of it this way. You're in a room, and everyone in the room hates you. People begin to lie about you, and the hate comes out, and they cough out words of hate and are saying some degrading things about you, some dehumanizing things. None of it's true, but then the room gets physical with you. And the intensity grows, and a push becomes a shove, a slap becomes a punch, and finally skin is broken, and your blood is shed. And it's shedding so fast that you can just feel your life ebbing away. What are you thinking about in the room, and the people in the room? Hold that thought. Listen to Chris Wright. He wrote this book, The God I Don't Understand. The cross was the worst that human evil and rebellion against God could do. At a purely human level, it plumbed the depths of depravity. There were inflamed fanatics, corrupt religious leaders, lying witnesses, political conspiracy, vested interests, nationalistic rage, morally bankrupt judicial processes, excruciating torture, public shame, taunting, mockery, and even among the friends of Jesus, there was treachery, betrayal, and cowardliness, and even more profound, all the powers of evil, satanic, aligned with human, raged against Christ, and hurled their worst at him. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, doing the perfect will of his Father, transformed all of this into the triumph of divine love, absorbing and defeating it at the same time. For the crucial point is that not only did Jesus defeat sin and evil, he made them the very agents of his defeat. He turned evil against itself to its ultimate destruction by his indestructible love. That's quite a love, isn't it? That's profound. It's real. It's a gift. It's costly. It's indestructible. And its effect will go on and on and on, world without end. Loved ones, everything good we will ever receive from God is connected to the cross of Christ. Hold that. Everything good that we will ever receive from God is connected to the cross of Christ. So as you think about human relationships, every human relationship will have one of those, look, I need to know you love me moments. It's part of being human. I just need you to say something. I need you to do something because I need to know that you love me. And great songs are written about that, great poems, right? But we don't need that with God because all God will do is he'll just direct us to the Son. He'll direct us to what already is. So again, human love is, is when I find you lovable, then, then um, I'll love you. But when I find you unlovable, then I can just walk away from you. I can walk away, even if it's just for a moment or a day or a week or for the rest of your love. life. Human love is so fragile, it breaks and it always has to be glued back together. We do not have to do that with God. God is committed to the unlovable because he keeps telling us that Christmas and the cross matter. And when you understand the Bible proper, then you will begin to see that every page is what? What is every page in the Bible? It is a love letter from God. 
My son and I have phrases that we tell each other that are actually quotes from terrible movies. So one of the ways that we communicate with each other is we say, don't you go quitting me. Don't you go quitting me, Dad. Don't you go quitting me, Jared. God says, I won't. Not to worry about that. God gives himself a propitiation, atoning sacrifice. And for John and for Jesus, this is a matter of life and death, right? Because if we're going to have the life, then Jesus had to taste death. You understand that? If we were going to have this life, then Jesus had to taste death for us. So this is not, again, this is not if-then conditional, which runs um, human thinking, right? If you do this, then I will do that. No, this, if you're going to live, then I'm going to have to die. It's beautiful. If you're going to live, then Jesus says, I'm going to have to die. Final point, the love is vital. God is committed to the unlovable, and and his love doesn't run away, doesn't cover up sins. It actually drags them into the open, puts them in his body, nails them to the cross, pays for them, and restores the relationship. That's why this love is so vital. C.S. Lewis on prayer once wrote this, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing had yet been done. Makes sense, but he wrote this about the gospel. We can begin anew as if nothing has ever gone wrong. God's love is a vital love. I need to know that. I need to know that. Over the Christmas break, I listened to a really good song by a beautiful lady, Shannon Shaw. The song is Love I Can't Explain. Listen to just the first verses. (laughs) So good. Well, it's been years and years and years. But I still feel and feel and feel you gave me love. You gave me love I can't explain. Rejection. We've all probably extended love in some way to somebody only to have it rejected. Rejection is a very human thing to do. It's incredibly painful to experience. Because in effect, the person is saying, you're not vital to me. You don't really matter, therefore I will reject you. But here, John says, verse 10, the shoe's on the other foot. The sins are ours, and our existence, and not just existence, but our happiness, our wellness, our assurance, all depends on God's love in Jesus. So if you've been in the position of being the helpless one, where you don't deserve a person's love, and you can't make it up, and those of us who are self-sufficient, we can just cringe at that, that we're depending on someone else's mercy, someone else's loving mercy, so that we can't stand in front of them unless we are carried by them. Do you understand that? You know the hymn that we sing at communion time sometimes? Carried to the table, seated where I don't belong. That's Christianity. That's God. That's the God of Christmas. That's the God of Easter, of Flag Day, of Labor Day, of Memorial Day, your birthday, every day. God carries us. He seats us where we don't belong. He gives us what we don't deserve, a forever costly, indestructible, vital love. A couple of things and we're done. Actually, three. You see, this is why human marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. A picture of two people needing to be carried by each other as they are each carried by God. Right? 
and therefore they're going to extend grace and they're going to depend on grace if the marriage is going to work out. We, our dryer broke during the Christmas holiday. Something always breaks at our house. And so when you know this, when you hang up clothes without any dryer and you put them on the hanger, you know how the hangers kind of make your shirts poke out like that sometimes if you hang them wrong? Well, I held them wrong. But then I was thinking, that little poke, I thought that's, that's how everybody's shirt should look, carried, being carried by God's grace. And if people need marriage counseling and they come in and their shirts are like this, I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> they don't know. It should be like this. They're like this. No, no, it should be like this. But not just in marriage relationships, human and church relationships. Two people carried by God so that they can carry each other, extend grace, and depend on grace. If the relationship is going to be workable, that's one. But two, Christian, know this. Now put this somewhere deep inside you. Love is never wasted. For its value does not rest upon, this is C.S. Lewis, reciprocity, payback. Christian love is never wasted because we don't worry about whether we're going to get paid back or not. If you think or feel that your love is wasted, then it's probably because your love isn't Christian love. It's just a clever disguise of self-centered love. You see, that's why we need propitiation. We, we need atonement. That's why 1 John 4.10 has to be true. That Christ completely satisfied all of God's wrath on all of our forever sin through his suffering and death on the cross. And because that's true, John says, now all you know is love. All you know is love. Enjoy it. Live like it sacrifice for others because of it? This is the final thing, and I'll close with this. I have a friend who has a friend, and he was out of town. And while he was out of town, he actually broke his marital vows. One night, he comes back home, the guilt too much, to his credit, he sits his wife down, he tells her what happened. Heart pounding, mouth dry. What's she going to do? Thank God they were a Christian couple. Amongst the, you know, the tears and the sadness of his wife, she tells him, I forgive you. He's so happy. Like, this is unbelievable. So a week later, he decides to come home early from work to surprise her and take her out. Comes through the front door. He hears noises upstairs. He climbs the stairs. He hears his wife, wife's voice. She's talking to someone in their bedroom. He goes through the door. He looks through the crack. His heart is like racing. And he sees his wife kneeling by the bed. And she's praying, Lord, I don't want to forgive him. It's so difficult. It's so difficult. It is difficult. It's so difficult that it took Jesus to die on the cross. That, says John, is Christmas. That is real, lasting, costly, saving, vital, indestructible love. Now, if you're without sin, then by all means, start throwing stones at all my thoughts. But if you're a Christian, rejoice. 
Feel God's love. Live in light of that love. And open that gift every day. And open that gift every moment of every day. And and give that gift to other people. Christmas is forever for the Christian. And if you're not a Christian, what's the hate about what I just said? What is so bothering you about what I just said? We saw a few movies over Christmas break. I had to write this line down. It's a very ending scene. The husband is at his wife's side. She's dying. Listen to what she said. She said, you were the love of my life, and you were the pain of my life. (laughs) And it means all the world that you are here. So I thought, say this to Christ, Joe. when When you arrive in heaven, Jesus, I am the love of your life. I was the pain in your life. And it means all the world that you have made a way for me to be here. Loved ones, don't let the old man in. The old man hates Christmas. But the new man enjoys Christmas. So Christian, you can go home. You can rest. You can sit down. If your tree's still up, you can imagine yourself grabbing one more gift. It's a Christmas gift from your good and gracious God. Let's pray. Father, it's a good way to end the year. It's such a It's just so appropriate, God, to end our time understanding who we are and who we are not, what is needed that we could never provide. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, from the bottom of our hearts for the giving of your son. One one act of decisive love that will carry on for all eternity. We praise you for your goodness and for the complexity and the simplicity of your plan. Now, to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who who gave himself for our sins so that he might deliver us from this present evil world, be glory and honor forever and ever. To the only wise God, be forever glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for your patience today. You're dismissed.